if you're not listening to us and you're paying lip service to us and what we want, then you're just doing more damage. So either really listen and try and absorb what we're saying, or if you can't do that, then please don't do anything at all. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. This week alone, in the midst of a devastating global pandemic, we've seen a massive earthquake hit Haiti again, and horrific and surreal images and stories streaming out of Afghanistan, documenting the fall of a government and takeover by the Taliban. It's difficult to process these events when we're already suffering collectively, and it's difficult to know what to do next, if anything. These events and others like them continually raise the question of the role aid and development work play in these crises and the effectiveness of humanitarian responses. Aid and development effectiveness should be continually interrogated. Maintaining the status quo and doing things how they've always been done will never result in the outcomes those in the global north profess to want for those in the global south. And herein lies the problem the power imbalance inherent in aid as a construct. My guest today is someone infinitely more qualified than me to talk on these topics. Timris Khan has spent the last 25 years working in the international development sector in Pakistan, South Asia, and more globally. Her work focuses on social policy, aid effectiveness, gender, and global migration and she actively speaks, writes, and advises the global community on notions of decolonization, north-south power imbalances in development, race relations, immigrant citizenship, and integration. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Tim Rees. Hi, Lee. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming. I'm very excited and happy to talk to you today. But first of all, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? The idea of doing good means doing what you feel is right. And that would probably be very different for everybody. Some people, it would be doing good just for themselves. For others, it would be being selfless and doing good for others. For some, it would mean a bit of both. It's a bit of a a broad category, this whole idea of doing good because we all interpret good very broadly as well. So for me, I could perhaps, you know, give some money to charity and think that I've done good, while somebody else would actually open a charity and and devote themselves to that particular work. But in both cases, everybody is doing what they can do according to their means. So I think for me, it's as much as one can do to perpetuate a more positive element in society. Right. Do you think intention matters in establishing whether something is actually good on the other side? Absolutely. It it absolutely does. I mean, you could be giving to charity because you want to absolve yourself of some, you know, responsibility or something bad that you did in the past and you want to feel good about yourself. So that intention would be very different from somebody who is completely selfish uh, and has been quote unquote good their entire lives and just wants to do more. So absolutely, I think intention behind the act is extremely important. And 
the act might be good, but sometimes the intention might actually not be good. And do you think just because someone has a good intention with their act of good, that that equalizes or or perhaps negates some of those negative outcomes of, of good intentions? I think it depends on the case that you're looking at. Individually, I think a lot of people do do that. They want to absolve themselves of uh, wrongdoing. And in many cases, if they keep doing it, it eventually, I suppose, does. But in a lot of cases, that might not happen because, like you you asked earlier, and I said the intention might be very selfish. And if that's the case, then I think as much as you try and do good, if your intention is in the wrong place, then I don't think it will continue to create an atmosphere of good. Yeah, yeah. So how would you say that you express your idea of good through your daily life? I don't know. I mean, in that context, I don't think I'm a particularly good person. I mean, I try and help as much as I can the people directly around me. So that starts with my family. It starts with the people who work with my family. And then it moves outwards from there. So it's a tough one because I personally, for instance, haven't opened a large organization or, 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 you know, a selfless charity, but I give to charity and whatever I do, I try, at least I hope it is with better intentions, but one doesn't really know. So in my daily life, I mean, I, I lose it a lot, particularly given the, you know, where I'm based, it's not a particularly good place to be in and it affects, it influences your actions every day. And I see myself not doing a lot of good in my daily life because I'm just so angry and frustrated at everything around me all the time. I think that makes a a big difference. But you try and hold back and you try and rethink that particular situation that's come in front of you on any given day and you try and reassess that. So that's that's how I try and do. It's a constant state of, I think, assessing, reassessing, observing, and then reacting. That question, I guess, leads me into my next question. You've had a 25-year career working in the international development sector, bilateral and multilateral agencies, national and international NGOs, and civil society organizations in Pakistan, South Asia, and Canada. You could say that you've dedicated your entire career to the international development and aid sector, yet in recent years, you've been very vocal in your critique of the sector. What changed for you? So definitely my entire life has been given to the aid sector. I started working as a volunteer from the age of 18, 17 or 18 in, you know, the more peri-urban parts of Pakistan. So I was exposed to the sector at a very early age. And yes, that's all I've done my entire life. And it was done with the intention of this passion not to do good, but a passion to be involved in the lives of my own people in my own country and to learn from them and the exposure that I was getting from going to different parts of my own country and spending time with people in various places, towns, cities, villages, was really an eye-opener for me to understand my own country. So that was the motivation And I did it with gusto. And that was the intention that I did every piece of work that I did. It's just that who I was doing the work with was what eventually gave me the big question mark. And those were all the international aid agencies that I worked with. And I've been very fortunate to have worked with 
a wide spectrum of agencies from the UN to the World Bank to um, the now Foreign Commonwealth Development Office. And initially, the exposure I was getting was because of the projects and programs those agencies were doing in Pakistan. So the opportunity they gave me was fantastic. But I was also working to their tune. So I was following their lead in terms of what agenda they had set, how things had to be done, and why things had to be done, and what the eventual outcome of that was. And eventually I realized that even though the learning was tremendous in every aspect about myself, about my own people, about the aid industry, about quote unquote doing good, that eventually it actually wasn't doing any good. Because where I started off 25 years ago was exactly where I still was 25 years later in terms of the discussions, in terms of the approaches, in terms of the methodologies, in terms of the way we were talking about people and the way we were talking to people. And that completely threw me off when I realized it. And it was sort of a sudden realization. It wasn't something that was gradual. It just one fine day, the light bulb went off. I can't remember when really, it was maybe a couple of years ago, but I realized, I said, haven't I been regurgitating the same BS in my reported reports and projects that I used to do when I started off in the 1990s? And I realized, yes, that's exactly what I've been doing. I've been saying the same damn thing using the same language, pardon my language, for all these years. And on the ground where I live my life, every single day, nothing had changed. And if something had changed, and yes, there had been change, but define change. That change wasn't due to the work I was doing or to the work that my clients were doing. It was literally due to the efforts of ordinary people on the ground. And that's what struck me the most, is that the sector that I was working in, which was so vociferously vocal about changing the lives of others was actually not doing it. It was stagnating it. So that's when I decided enough is enough. I'm not going to, you know, play to the gallery. And I did. For 25 years, I played to the gallery. And I realized not only did it damage the people I was working with in my own country, it damaged me. So that's when I said, okay, it's time to put a stop to it. And I did. I stopped. I guess that experience for you was quite confronting to look back on a, a long career of doing good and, and believing, as you say, with gusto that you were you were genuinely helping. After you kind of came through that initial shock and, and self-reflection, where did you land in terms of why nothing had changed in 25 years? What was it that you could kind of, if you could, put your finger on as to why? I think that's the work in progress where I'm currently at. I think a lot of the why is already under discussion and debate in the wider circles of aid. And that is that that there is no autonomy in countries like mine who are on the receiving end of aid and development. We don't really have a say at all in what we get and what we do with it. I think that is the biggest issue. But why is that the case? And while a lot of the discussion initially is focused again on the North, like on the aid institutions themselves, I mean, why do they behave in this very condescending and patronizing way towards countries like mine? 
is not so much the question for me as in why do countries like mine accept this sort of attitude and behavior? Because technically speaking, legally, administratively speaking, we are independent, autonomous countries. We are not at the behest. I mean, we are at the behest of you know, the more powerful countries in the world, but we don't have to be. And I think that's where I am right now. My focus is on us and our behavior, why we accept what we do and why we don't push back enough. I mean, they are what they are. And I think we've come to the conclusion that they will never change. I mean, we're seeing everything that's happening around us is because they will never change. But that doesn't mean we don't have to change. So for me, that's the focus. We are the focus. Why do we accept what we accept? Why do you accept this hegemony? Why do we compromise all the time? Why do we have to be answerable to others? Why aren't we answerable to ourselves? So that's where I am right now. Certainly there's been discourse in the global north-led aid sector recently about some of these topics, but again, it's led by that side. They're the ones having the conversation and often leading it. Do you find that there is some pushback from the Northern-led institutions when you talk about this topic? Yes and no. I mean, there's been a pushback from clients when I used to work in the sector. You know, and that's in terms of if you want to make even little things like changes or rephrase a sentence, or if you put a, re- a sentence in a particular way about an issue in your country, because you're looking at it from your perspective and then they question that. I think that is your biggest indication that there is pushback, that they don't want to see that change because of of the powers that are further above them, for instance. So in that sense, yes, even in the discussions that are being led by the Global North, by international aid institutions, there is this lip service, I think, being paid to the whole issue of the global south's autonomy because again it's the, you know it's the in thing to do and they don't want to be seen as being left out of that discussion so even that i think is very superficial it's just to be seen that no 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 we're we're listening to you when they're absolutely not you know behind the scenes they're going and doing exactly what they want to which is why i think again i would say the emphasis should be forget about them you know we're giving them more importance by saying that let's get Uh, international aid institutions on the table as well. No, forget about them. Let's get ourselves on the table. We matter, not them. And that is something I'm not seeing so far. I mean, there is a buildup towards that, particularly in Africa, for instance, but we're not there yet. We still are, in a way, looking towards having a partnership. And I hate that word completely and absolutely with institutions of the global north, whereas my approach is just leave them behind. Tell me why you hate the word partnership. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's another buzzword that I've also used incessantly in my own work. And it started with beneficiaries, right? We are the beneficiaries of uh, Northern Aid and say, no, we're not beneficiaries. We're recipients of it. And like, no, we're not recipients of it. We're collaborators with them. No, we're not. We're partners with them. I mean, at the end of the day, we are nothing. This is not what partnership is. Partnership means you're putting in something as well, whereas from our end, we're not putting anything in. 
And if we are, it's a meager amount. The word is also just another buzzword that's been thrown in by the global north to show that, no, 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 we're actually listening to them. We're doing it their way. We're not doing it our way because we're partners. But for me, it's it means nothing. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the, the phrase participatory development? Oh, same. Any phrase you'll put to me now, you know, that has been part of the development lingo is something that I would not care to comment on because I just, I don't want to speak that language anymore. Yeah, yeah. This raises some very topical and relevant issues around um, the role aid plays in the global south, particularly in post-conflict or countries experiencing conflict. And we are recording this podcast the day after we've seen some pretty horrific and very surreal and heartbreaking scenes coming out of Afghanistan. And I guess it raises a big question around the role aid has played in bringing Afghanistan to where we are today and going further than that, the responsibility post what is happening now. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. I mean, it's a very, very tragic and unfortunate situation that's unfolding. And like many, I think, around the world, it is glued to the news and it's been back to back this for the last few days. I don't want to talk about the past and about, you know, what aid did or did not do for Afghanistan. I think that a lot of work has been done on that already. And it's a gray area too, because you know, it's a very unique situation, unlike a lot of other countries. But right now, I think the focus should be on what do we do now, as in immediately now. And I think for that, it's literally helping and saving lives. And that should be the top priority for everybody. There is this massive anti-refugee wave that's sweeping the world. And it's not just sweeping the West, I think it's sweeping parts of the world as well, simply because we've handled millions and millions of refugees across the region in South Asia for many, many years. And we've never been able to manage that load because the international community has never really helped us. Plus, we've been very anti that ourselves. And right now, a situation is unfolding where it is all about that. You know, the political situation being what it is, I don't want to say much about it because that's been evolving for people keep saying 20 years. No, it's been evolving for 40 years, at least. This is not something that happened overnight. But the immediate horror that we're seeing can only be addressed if we talk about taking people in. People are talking about that. I think that is the issue at hand, but the way it's being reacted to and responded to by all countries, I think, and I wouldn't just talk about the West here, I talk about ourselves here as well, is just beyond horrific in itself. I mean, nobody seems to want to take them in. And that is something we need to be thinking about because I keep thinking about the fact that what if we were in that situation and being where I am, right next door to Afghanistan, God forbid, situations like that are a possibility. So where would I see myself or my family if that happened to me? I have a very old family. A lot of them are women. Would I be dragging them to the airport tarmac trying to, you know, get on any plane that's getting out of the country? No, that's not what I want to see. It's not what I want to be involved with. But people just seem to detach themselves so easily from these situations. 
And I think that's, again, your whole idea of doing good. They talk about doing good a lot, but this is the one time where you actually can do good. But even those do-gooders don't seem to want to respond to this because of just, I think, the, the depth of the politics that's behind it. And that's completely rotted, this whole approach. So right now, I mean, I think the focus should just be on getting people out of there any which way. And what I'm seeing from a lot of country is this absolute resistance, which is horrific, absolutely horrific. I want to talk about the fate of Afghan women and girls under the Taliban regime. I'd rather speak to that in a more general sense, because I've worked in the, you know, quote unquote, again, gender and development field for a very long time. I mean, that was one of the main focuses of my career. And I'm also doing some work on white feminism in development, which points to the fact that a lot of the work that's been done with women in the global south is actually not contextualized according to their real lives and actual lives. The approaches that are brought in for women's empowerment and gender equality and you know, women's rights are universally acceptable. Things like, you know, all women should have access to basic services and education and health and obviously, you know, a decent future. But I think the way those approaches have been uh, implemented and operationalized in other countries completely defies the reality of those countries. You know, I mean, I've seen workshops, I've been part of workshops and training you know, sessions where women are being taught how to, you know, do financial management or how to run a small business. Now, all that is very well, but the training doesn't address issues like, are women even going to be allowed to run a business? What is the regulatory environment? How friendly is it to women? What is the domestic environment of the woman? Will she be allowed? to run a business? What will happen to the money that she earns? And this is something we saw in the whole idea of microcredit, which is touted so much by the West in the 80s and the 90s, that uh, give loans or credit uh, lines of credit to women and let them start a business and they'll pay back the loans. And what we saw was that it was the husbands who were jobless or drug addicts who were taking away all the money the women earned. So, I mean, these nuances, I think, are completely ignored in this whole aid business. The repercussions of that are what we are seeing all over the world. I'm not saying that all of it has been an abject failure. There have been pockets where I think countries have been able to take this forward themselves. But at the end of the day, it all depends on how that particular country views women. And if the country doesn't view women positively, then whatever you do from any sort of approach will ultimately not be beneficial. And I think that's something we're seeing in the current circumstances. And it's something we're seeing in a lot of other countries where this whole idea of, you know, let's save the women and let's empower them approach that's, you know, the, the West absolutely loves to perpetuate. Yeah. So what's the alternative? It's a tough question because I think we've come to a point where women all around the world, particularly in lesser developed countries, are in a position where they are just constantly fighting to survive, just to survive 
the next day. I see myself doing that. Every single day for me is a struggle to be able to be heard, to be able to just protect myself and my family. And that's not an easy fix for anyone to do, certainly not for the aid industry. So I think where we stand right now is that we are pretty much on our own. And unless we don't come together amongst ourselves and fight for our own rights in our own countries, we're not going to get ahead anywhere because aid is a quick fix. Gender is a quick fix. It's not even a fix. It's just whatever you want to call it. A band-aid. Yeah, not even that. I mean, the band-aid's been ripped off in so many places, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a tough call. It's a tough question. I don't have the answer to that. I think a lot of women like me don't have the answer to that. And that's okay. Because pushing us to get an answer from us is also very, very difficult and painful for us, given what we're facing and others are not. So what would you say to those that are um, coming from the white feminist approach in aid? Stay away from us. to stay away from us at least for a while Uh, because again it's that whole ethos of partnership right no no we want to partner with women in the global south we want to partner with our sister organizations you know who are fighting for women's rights that means absolutely nothing fighting with partners means you go there and you spend your lives there you give up the current life that you're leading And you go and you throw yourself into that. You do not direct or coordinate or manage those fights from thousands of miles away in countries that are so completely disconnected from them. So for me, it would be literally leave us alone. Your issues do not equate with ours. Universally, yes, women are struggling all over the world, but they're struggling in very different ways. And they're struggling in very different environments. So I think unless and until you understand and that you're humble about the fact that you have a lot more privileges than we do, stay away. And I I honestly mean that. I honestly mean that. Stay away and leave us to our devices so that we can get ourselves together. And actually perhaps formulate a more, you know, internal response to the issue. This, I guess, relates to the deeper question about why people want to help others and and why they want to engage in doing good and and why certain people focus on certain spaces and, and issues in development. When we see something like what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment, we're motivated to try to help. We're motivated to want to do something because the images and the stories and the sounds are eliciting an emotional response in us. And often we see, particularly in the time of disasters or, you know, natural and man-made disasters as well, we see this huge outpouring of help or doing good, whether it's in the form of money or volunteering and then later down the track programming through aid organisations. And a lot of it is misguided and a lot of it does cause further harm and doesn't really solve any of those issues meaningfully. What is your advice to people who are motivated and are going to be feeling that emotional response themselves to help? What's your advice to them? I've been 
involved in humanitarian catastrophes and disasters in Pakistan. We know when we had the earthquake in 2005 in the northern areas, and then you know we had floods across the country uh, a few years later. And I saw the damage that a lot of the external response did. I mean, what the massive external institutional response was is a whole different issues, but there were, you know, there were individuals coming in, all again, good intentions, but intentions can also be questioned, right? Intentions are good to the particular individuals, but they may be seen differently by people around them. They just reacted. It was a knee-jerk reaction. I mean, I've had knee-jerk reactions over the last few days myself, but then you have to pull back and you say, am I the right person for this? whatever I'm thinking about, you know, will I, like you say, do more harm than good? And I think I will, even though I've been part of this sector and this industry for so long, and I do know a lot of the ins and outs, still, this is a very, very unique situation. And it's the same in so many other countries that I'm seeing around me. So this knee-jerk reaction, if anybody's having, needs to be controlled. You need to take a step back. You need to be humble about it and see do I know anything about what's going on? Do I know enough about what's going on? Do I know enough about what the right responses should be? And I think also we all need to realize that not all of us can actually help in the way that you know, we see help as, as in physically and tangibly. And that's okay. I think that's okay. I think the main issue should be empathy. I think you should empathize with the situation. You should put it in a proper context and not be arrogant or ignorant about it. And you should encourage others who can actually be helpful to be helpful. But I think this whole idea that, oh no, I'm the one who's going to go and help. I think we all need to control that emotion within us because that's ultimately what gets us into trouble. So I think for everybody right now who's viewing world news, we all need to take a step back. We all need to take a deep breath. And we all need to see, okay, when I say help, what do I really mean? And that ties into what you were saying earlier around we need countries to be opening up borders and stepping in and, and welcoming refugees. You know, talking about all of these things and, and your own personal journey through the sector and, and where you've landed, I wonder if the answer to my next question would be quite different if I had have asked you this a few years back. but. What now do you find the most rewarding thing about the work that you do on a daily basis? And, and conversely, what is it that is hardest for you to reconcile with what you face every day? I think the most rewarding is what I've learned in my journey, in my career, all these decades. And that comes into the present. I think that's, that's what I'm still very grateful for. What I've learned from my own people what I've learned traveling the length and breadth of my country, ultimately that's what brought me to my decision. So I think that has been and continues to be a very rewarding part of my life, of my career. And I would not like to stop that. I would like to keep going in that direction. I would like to keep learning more and more as much as I can, speak to more and more people around me, not in that whole consultant researcher style where you know again you're you're putting yourselves above others but more literally on a daily basis when i speak to 
you know, the shopkeepers around me, when I'm speaking to the vegetable seller, when I'm speaking to the fruit seller, when I'm speaking to the plumber, the electrician, and in our world, these are the masses. Those interactions are where I'm focusing myself on. Whereas earlier, they were far removed from my career. And I think that's what went wrong. And that has what has gone wrong with the entire industry. We who work in the industry, no matter where we are, completely separate our actual daily lives from our work when actually they are one and the same. And I think that's what's gone wrong in the industry as a whole. So that's what I'm trying to do now. I'm trying to reconnect with my literal daily life, the struggles that I have with running a household, with managing a family, with being a single unmarried older woman in a country that doesn't look you know, very well on women like me. So I think that's both rewarding and that is the actual challenge as well. And to take it away from a, you know, an aid context and to keep it in a very raw, emotional, literally, this is my life. And how can I change it? So I think that's the struggle and that's the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Who, if you can think of somebody, has been your greatest influence in your career choices and and around this idea of doing good? That's a tough one. I don't think I've actually been influenced by any one person. I joined the career because I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I just found the work that was being done to be fascinating. I can talk about a lot of Northern writers and and development practitioners whose books I read and then was fortunate enough to meet them somehow or the other. They weren't an influence, but I think they did direct my work a lot. But I don't think I can actually talk about any one person influencing me. I think my career was pretty organic and it went from there. But I think in terms of doing good, the one person that has influenced me has been I mean, most of us will never even be able to come close to what he was. He's, he's no longer alive. Is uh, this gentleman in Pakistan, Maulana Abdul Sattar Idi. And I never realized what an influence he had on me until just when he passed away a few years ago. He is the biggest humanitarian that our country has. And his organization, which is the Idi Foundation, is the biggest humanitarian organization that we have in Pakistan right now. And it's international in its scope, in the sense that it flies out volunteers and help and assistance to any disaster anywhere in the world, not just in Pakistan. And he was the most humble and most unaffected person you could come across. He literally lived in you know, the same pair of clothes. He was selfless. We called him the Mother Teresa of Pakistan, but I think, I think he went further in many ways. So that is what I call it person doing good. That's true selflessness. And his sons have taken up his mantle after his death and they're trying to do as much as he did. But I think they're completely overshadowed by their late fathers. I don't think anybody can ever come close. So a, a bit of a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is and, and something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? a tough one because I know most people would just rattle off climate change, but uh, I don't (laughs) think that's the biggest problem we're faced with. It's a tough one. I mean, we're faced with so many, right? I think it's a collective social failure that we're facing. 
it's not just any one thing. It's, it's a mix of so many that have brought us to where we are today. It's political, it's environmental, it's social. So it's hard to put a finger on it. It's very hard to put a finger on it. But I think the biggest, in my opinion, would be you know the political catastrophe that we're in, the way countries have behaved themselves and how they've behaved among themselves and within themselves that's put us in the situation that we are now. So many types. I and mean, if you look at migration, you look at climate change, you look at violence against women, you look at refugees, all these are politically created catastrophes. You know, they're not naturally created. So I think that is the biggest thing. How do we change our political selves? Do you have the answer to that? No. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. <laughs> if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, today, what would it be? Either really, really listen to what we're saying or leave us alone. If you're not listening to us and you're paying lip service to us and what we want and what we think, then you're just doing more damage. So either really listen, sit back and listen to us and try and absorb what we're saying instead of reacting immediately. Or if you can't do that, then please don't do anything at all. What does listening, real listening look like? That's a tough one. In fact, I think I'm getting my lines crossed. I said once that, you know, you hear us, but you don't listen to us. This was in context of aid agencies, that they don't listen to us in the global south. They hear us, but they don't listen to us. And I'm wondering whether it should be the other way around, you know, whether those two words of hearing and listening can be used interchangeably. I think it's really an issue of ignoring what we're saying. So they're listening to what we're saying. They're not oblivious to what we're saying. And they're hearing the dissent, but they're completely shutting it out. So I think that's what I mean. When you say, listen, don't shut us out. If you nod your heads when we're saying that is the wrong approach, it will not work. And when you go back and use the same approach, you're not listening, you're not even hearing. So what's the point of us talking so much if nothing's actually going in or, or it's going in and coming out the other end? I mean, I don't know if that's an answer, but... No, I, I think you're right. And I think, of course, if you're speaking and you're thinking you're being heard, but it doesn't result in any tangible change in the way things are done. Eventually people stop speaking. Yeah, exactly. And that's happening now. I, I, I used to be very vocal in the last one year. I used to sort of accept any speaking invitation or writing invitation because like, okay, my voice has to be heard now. You know, I, I've also BSed a lot. It's time to sort of change my tune and make sure people know what I really think. And then after a while, and a short while, I realized, but I'm also talking on deaf ears, so why should I waste my time? And I've actually started to turn down a lot of offers now, particularly those that come from the North, because I feel like I'm speaking to a brick wall and I'm not going to waste my time doing that. It's not my responsibility anymore. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really important point. Therese, before we wind up, I have a question that I ask all my guests. Where is your favorite place on earth? In a library surrounded by books and preferably overlooking an ocean. 
<laughs> is there any particular library that comes to mind or, or ocean when you think of that? No, my own personal library. <laughs> I love books. Amazing. That leads me into my next question. What book are you reading right now? I'm reading two. I'm reading a novel called The Sympathizer by an, a Vietnamese-American author, Viet Thanh Nguyen. It's a fictional novel about uh, a Vietnamese-American in America post the Vietnam War. I've just started that one. And I've also just started a book uh, by Diana Dark, which is called Stealing from the Saracens. And it's a really interesting proposition about how Christian architecture was originally influenced by Muslim architecture. And it's a book that's garnered a lot of controversy because, of course, nobody wants to hear that Christian architecture is sacred, apparently. But it's a really interesting exploration of how elements from past Muslim eras actually influenced a lot of Gothic architecture all across the West. You know, so I've just started that. That's really interesting. Fascinating. And do you listen to podcasts at all? Not much, actually, because there's just so much online. I, I know I bookmark so many of them, but I never get around to listening to them. I know a lot of people put them on and do other stuff in the background, but I can't do that. I have to really listen if I'm listening to something, which is ironically doing a podcast, but I need to get into the habit of listening to more podcasts. Yeah, look, I'm the same. I need to be active listening rather than just having it on in the background. Well, Tim Reese, I want to thank you so much for making the time to share your thoughts with me today and to discuss some of these really complex issues that we definitely didn't have enough time to really dig into. I do want to thank you, though, for sharing your opinions, your ideas, your perspectives, your experiences. They're so valuable in helping us to, I guess, keep talking and keep having these conversations. Where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter, which has been recent and which has actually completely changed my life and had a lot to do with all these conversations that I'm having. I have to admit, I I ignored Twitter for the larger part of my life and just joined it a year ago and it's completely changed my life. So that's where I'm probably the most most vocal. Uh, And I do write. I have a website where I put up my articles, which is timbreeze.wordpress.com. And I also write a blog, which is lamehdoob.wordpress.com. You can find those both online. Yeah, online is where everybody finds everybody these days. They do. And what's your Twitter handle? It's my name. It's Timbreeze. Great. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Tim Reese. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much, Lee, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I hope I haven't ruffled too many feathers, although one should keep ruffling feathers. One shouldn't stop. You should absolutely keep ruffling feathers. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. 
We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, non-profit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.